Lucky you. 36 best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Sandy. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen from the Alternate Shots Podcast, we are so, so very thrilled to have with us today our special guest, Mark Frost, and uh, Billy and I thank you, Mark, for joining us. Most folks would know you in the golfing world, Mark, for certainly the Grand Slam, the greatest game, and we're looking at the match. There was a great event, getting ahead of this a little bit, after the book came out um, in 2012, I think it was, Ken had been notified by um, the Golf Hall of Fame he was going to be admitted that year. and. they had decided uh, there's the first T organization, which ha- has a yearly uh, tournament at Pebble. And they had decided to invite Ken and I as uh, two of the guests of honor for the event. It was a, there was a tournament and, and the fun part was the tournament was the first day at Pebble big dinner that night at Pebble, I think. Um, the next day we recreated the match and they had brought in Ricky Fowler and Bubba Watson to play Harvey and Ken. And uh, it was going to be Freddie Couples and and, uh, Davis Love to play Ben and Byron. And at the last minute, Freddie's back went out. So Nick Watney came in and, and played with them. So the only people who were invited were the people who were at that dinner the night before, all the donors to the first the, the first tee. And um, President Bush was there. He flipped the coin to start it. I was seated at a table with President Bush on my right, Arnie on my left, and Ken over here next to Arnie and and my, my buddy Jim Nance and I had plotted, we got to get Ken and Arnie to bury the hatchet. All right. So because I hate to do this. We have 30 yeah. seconds. Would you mind taking a little water break and signing back on to this? And we'll finish this story. We'll go back. Yes. To Ken. Okay. We'll go back to the seating arrangements and we'll start back from there. Because sure. you're going to sure. get cut off summarily right here. Get a water, okay. don't wash your hands or whatever, because I have to give this seven or eight minutes. All right. Five or six. Oh, seven or eight minutes. Okay. All right. You good. We'll it. be right I'll back. Then. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Mark. Um, record, record, record part two with Mark Frost. Mark, we were talking about the uh, recreation of the match at Pebble Beach for the uh, special donors of the first tee program. So we had the dinner the night before and the, the, the guests of honor were at the uh, table. Number one, it was, uh, I was seated between uh, president Bush and Arnie um, and then Jim Nance, then Ken, or it might've been the other way around, but uh, uh, it was a star studded evening. And uh, Jim and I had talked about this before because Arnie and Ken had had uh, a bit of a, a dust up, as you remember, from 
going all the way back to, I think it was the 56 masters where exactly. Ken felt that he'd gotten a favorable ruling by kind of browbeating an official on an embedded ball and uh, that it may have cost Ken the tournament as a, as an amateur who would have been the first amateur to win it since Mr. Jones, as he always called him. Um, and I'd, I'd heard both guys side of the story and, and I just felt the other part of the, background of this is Ken was not in great health and he was going to be inducted to the hall of fame in a few months. And uh, uh, Jim and I looked at each other and said, look, they may never be in the same room again for all we know. Let's try to get, let's try to get them together. And so we did. And they, they, they ended up talking for five, 10 minutes together. And we felt like, okay, you know, we may have helped that a little bit. So the next morning we all show up, seven o'clock in the morning in Cyprus and um, cool, clear, frosty morning. Um, they've all got, the players all show up. Nick Watney, who was sort of playing Hogan, brought a, his Hogan cap. Davis, I thought, made a good Byron. That was good casting. Um, uh, Bubba actually made a good Harvey, you know, mm -hmm. as a the, kind of the happy-go-lucky, anything for a laugh kind of guy. Loose as a goose. And Ricky was a very good Ken, you know, kind of um, focused, um, serious, and a great iron player. So, you know, we, uh, we'd cast it pretty well, I thought. And the spooky thing about it, and we, we walked the course, I walked with Jim and a couple of other guys, the whole, it went 18. It was almost exactly the same score as the match had been in 56. Wow. Um, the pros ended up, uh, winning one up on 17, not 18, which is where it was decided before. Um, the only Eagle in the match had been Hogan on, I think it was 10. Um, he holed out from about 95 yards with a pitching wedge. Nick Watney holed out from, with a pitching wedge from about a hundred yards for an Eagle. Wow. The only eagle on the match. All four guys in the original birdied 13. All four guys in our match birdied 13. It was spooky. That I is mean, spooky. and everybody felt it. Everybody felt it. It was an absolutely magical afternoon. Um, and, and it ended. And Eddie Lowry lost the bet again. <laughs> exactly. Was I'm sure. He... out there? Uh, Ken stayed for the first couple of holes and then he was, he was riding around on a cart. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't able to walk it, but, um, that's a day I'll never forget. I mean, it's um, like the day they brought Bobby Jones to Wingfoot and yeah. everybody tried to make the putt that he made in 1929. They said, uh, why don't you give it a shot? He says, I don't need to. I already made it. I already made that. Putt. I, remember I already that. made that. Yeah. Putt. yeah. I remember that story. Fabulous, uh, very inventive idea, and you had the right players to do that. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta go back to Bobby Jones. I feel no one maybe knows Bobby Jones other than some diehards at Augusta National better than you. Maybe how, Sid Matthews. How would you sure. defend if you said Bobby Jones? There's a lot of debate. It's the greatest golfer of all time. Describe how you would defend that. Um, I would I would build the argument that 
if he wasn't the greatest, and I think there's an argument to say that he was, he was the most important. Um, I, I used the analogy in greatest in the greatest game that um, Francis was like John the Baptist, and Bobby arrived like our Lord and Savior in terms of what he did, how he elevated the game. Um, he was inspired by Francis. Um, uh, his his relationship, obviously, it, with East Lake and um, the guy, the caddy who had taught him, the Scottish caddy, uh, is a fantastic story. But when it came down to the heat of battle, and he was mostly a match play player, um, I, I, there was nobody better. I mean, you know, we always talk about it era versus era and it's an impossible question to answer but he had a game that would have lived in any era um he was also an extraordinary human being with english lit major a a, a master a, a master's in um mechanical engineering and a law degree uh the most well-rounded person to ever play the game in some ways um and he played it in a tie. And he played it in a suit and tie with, for the most part, whippy shafts. I I, I mentioned Sid Matthews, who's a, a, a colorful guy who lives in Atlanta and has written a bunch of books about Jones. He's got a museum of Jones memorabilia that he's collected over a lifetime, which he, which he generously shared with all of me, and I uh, uh, all of it with me. And I went down to visit him. And he took me out to a little course, um, very old course in Thomasville, Georgia, Southern Georgia, just over, he lived in Jacksonville, I think. Uh, um, and we played around with two sets of Bobby Jones's clubs, which he owned. Now I had never tried to play with Hickory before and um, I could barely get the ball off the ground. Um, so the thought that Jones did what he did with these clubs that had a sweet spot smaller than a dime, um, to me, spoke volumes. I mean, to actually have the experience with the clubs in your hands and go, I have no idea how he did this. It's a, it's a completely different swing. And um, – his mastery of the mental side of the game, which cost him dearly when he was playing, as you know, the stress that he went under in these tournament weeks, he could lose up to 20 pounds in three days. The flesh melted off him like a, like a candle when he was in the heat of battle. And um, in more ways than one, winning the Grand Slam nearly killed him as it became this consuming event really for the entire sporting universe at that time, the year that he did it. Um, I think for all those reasons that he was never afraid of anybody, the only guy who could really, you could say was on the same level as a player. I mean, um, was Hagen. Walter Hagen. Hagen um, and Hagen had a, a, a different kind of, way of going about the game. He was devil may care and um, a, a com complete, it, it couldn't have been more 
or Les Chalant, you know, as as a player. He he was the he was the 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 life of the party. Uh, we also know that he was also pouring his drinks into the plants a lot as he was getting everybody else loaded before or after a round. But uh, he was no dummy. But um, and you know, um, Sarazen had started to come along, but wasn't really on the scene yet with the same uh, the same force and. A lot of his great matches were against other amateur players, um, and there, there, you know, he had some great matches with those guys. But there, there wasn't any other titan of the game at that point that, as an amateur, he would he would go against all uh, all the time. Uh, he and Francis had some great matches. Nobody no. approached him. Uh, Francis. Nobody really him pushed him. No one pushed him. No. Right? Mickelson. No. So pushed he pushed Tiger. himself. He didn't. He didn't need a push. He, you know, he was so obsessed with perfection. And we know what happened at St. Andrews the first time he went over when he quit the game in a, in a, in a kind of um, juvenile fit as he put it, tore up his scorecard and walked off the course. Um, to come back and become the embodiment of everything that the game could be um, and the living exemplar of the game's values, which I think he um, he lived to the end of his life, and and what he did for the game, keeping Augusta going during the depression, starting the the Masters, he was really responsible for the 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 next big bang. I, I mean, if if what Francis did was the atom bomb, Bobby was the hydrogen bomb, and in terms of his impact on the the development of the sport. So um, all in, and I know, and I've met Jack and I've spent time with him and he's a, he's an amazing guy and I would put him a very close second. And then I'd put tiger right in that same foursome, certainly. Um, but if you had to play a match tomorrow, life or death, I think I'd want Bobby Jones playing for me. Wow. Against anybody. How did he get hooked up with Alistair McKenzie? Because that was a brilliant combination there. That was done through Marion Hollings uh, or Hollins, who had um, had this idea for Cyprus. And she had hired McKenzie, I believe. I may have my dates wrong, but I think she, he had worked on Pasatiempo prior to um, Cyprus. So she knew him. He He wasn't quite the the titan of golf course design that we think of now. I mean, he, and he only really did, you know, a handful of clubs all in, but um, Bobby worked with him and he was in, in many instances, a, a kind of creative partner in creating that course. Um, but she was the one who put them together and fostered, and she had a hand in it too. She was a, she was a force in, in, um, Northern California golf and, and society circles. Uh, and it was her dream really that this, uh, how that club got off the ground. So um, I, I think it was just one of those things. It was like when the, everybody came together to make Casablanca, you know, it was, right. it, it, all was it was greater than the sum of its parts. Yep. And um, exactly. And right. I, I, I would, I, I mean, I have a special fondness for it because I played it a bunch and I, I think its beauty is unmatched, but Cyprus is my favorite course. And if that, you know, the old question, if you had one round 
left to play, where would it be? That that would be my answer. Um, so I, you know, it it means a lot to me personally, and uh, and I think it's it's a great story because it was really also the birth of golf on the West Coast. Um, at, at that plus what then happened with Crosby and the starting the clam bake and supporting the Western tour, which was really the start of the PGA tour. So it's in it, you see the, it's the, the chrysalis for what became professional golf today. With, with support from big timers, Crosby was, nobody was bigger, right? Was he bigger than nobody Hope? was bigger. He was bigger than Hope. Yeah, right? because he had a, he had a broader reach because of his recording career. And, um, you know, they were both obviously in, in the movies and on radio and um, had come out of vaudeville. But um, Crosby had a, uh, had a kind of genius. I mean, he uh, the, the, similar to Bobby Jones in a way. I mean, he invented um, magnetic tape recording. You know, he, he created the first kind of usable commercial tape for recording his own songs. Um, and nobody was bigger. It wasn't until Elvis and then the Beatles came along that anybody sold more records than Bing Crosby. And but I they remember still, music. They still did not sell White Christmas, I don't think, for quite some time. No, no. It's um, and you know you you think about the the road movies, which I can still watch today and sure. laugh myself sick. Those guys were incredible comedy partners. I mean, there wasn't anything Crosby couldn't do. Um, it was a little, a little bit like Dean Martin in that respect. He didn't look like he was ever working very hard when he was an actor. Same with Dean, but they were fine actors and very truthful actors who gave you the real deal. You know, if you ever watched The Country Girl with with oh, Grace Kelly, absolutely. you know, um, he could he could really bring it. So yeah, pretty amazing guys. Yeah, they were both both Bing Crosby and Dean Martin are extremely likable on screen. Yeah. And, and in real life, I got to meet Dean too. And um, he was not the, 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 the Rue that he pretended to be on stage. He was in private. He was uh, a delightful kind of low key guy. Um, I was, I had a good friend who was with, knew them both very well, both Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And um, actually walked into there was a little restaurant Dean used to go to on Santa Monica called Carmine's. And my friend who, who's passed away, was a great producer who produced greatest game ever played actually knew Jerry really well. And they were doing something together and they walked into Carmine's and Dean and Jerry hadn't seen each other in over a decade. And he got to witness, I mean, the minute Jerry saw him, he started tearing up and he talked him into going over and he sat with them for half an hour and listened to their conversation. Dean had lost his his son uh, who died in a, he was in the Air Force Reserve and his plane had crashed. Um, a thing that he never really recovered from. That was the thing that, that killed Dean. Um, but to be only one step removed from the reunion of Lewis and, and Mark, Martin was pretty cool. It's, it's, yeah, they were quite a duo. Yeah. Talking to folks like yourself and hearing these stories emphasizes the importance of friendships. And you're talking yeah. about uh, Palmer and Venturi. And it makes these guys human to hear these stories. Exactly. 
Yeah, it does. And, and they uh, all are. And that's, you know, I have a nephew who's a prominent MLB player and um, I'd, I'd never seen the inside of pro baseball until he was at that level. And you forget that these guys have to get up every morning and they, they hurt and they've got to push through and they're particularly baseball. It's a freaking marathon. They've got to play 162 games and, and then they go to work and people scream at them. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I think about, okay, I'm getting up in the morning. I'm working on my new book. Am I going to invite 12 people in to heckle me while I'm writing? I mean, it's you like, really want to say it that way. Yeah, you can't think you can't find a better word for that. But you know, where's your thesaurus when you need it? It's like How about that exclamation point. Yeah. I mean, Remember you know, Billy G. King famously said, uh, pressure is a privilege. And I think every, every great athlete would agree with that if they're up to it. Um, there are very rare individuals who don't seem to feel it. Only a few. I think Nicholas is one of those guys. He Derek got better. Jeter. Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter was that way. Tom Brady. Um, George uh, Brett. Tiger. Yeah, George Brett. There were guys um, who just didn't care. It only made him focus. Made uh, him better. More. Yeah, made him yeah. better. That's a rare. That's a rare person. What was the story about um, Marilyn Monroe going over to entertain the troops and coming back and telling her husband at the time, Joe DiMaggio, that he'll never know what it's like to stand in front of 50,000 people cheering for you? Yeah. It's like, how well, really? Joe DiMaggio? Yeah, really? Do you know, you, you, you know what my last game? name is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just watched, uh, there's a, a good documentary. I actually wrote a movie about her in the 80s. Um based on a book called Goddess by an Irish uh, journalist. That was the first book that told the whole story of her life and her involvement with the Kennedys. And um, there's a pretty good documentary called The Mysteries of Marilyn Monroe that's on, I think on Netflix now, mm -hmm. where he goes back and it's recreated out of all the interviews that he did with all the people who were involved. If you're if you're curious about her story at all, it's worth a watch. It's pretty good. I have to ask you, how, how did... How did it end for her? Who had it in for her? Was it Sam G and Well, Jones? how do you think it happened? Um, it was my conclusion, and I this guy's name was Anthony Summers. Still, he's still with us, and and he's an Irish journalist who's written some great books about Hoover, the Kennedy assassination. I mean, he's he's covered the waterfront. I mean, he wrote a book about the even the um, uh, the the. Uh, what's their name? The 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 Russian ruling ruling family, the Romanovs, who were killed in 1917. Um, so he was the first serious journalist to dig into this this story around Maryland. So to make a very long story short, and you should watch the documentary. What seems to have happened is that she wasn't murdered, but that she was under this tremendous amount of distress because she'd been involved with both Jack and then Bobby and um, had, they had then just dropped an iron curtain and cut her off. And she was a very vulnerable, very um, fragile, um, fragile soul. And um, Bobby was on the West coast. She was taking a lot of, of um, 
of drugs to handle her anxiety and her depression. And apparently there was a visit to her house that involved her psychiatrist and Peter Lawford and Bobby Kennedy and maybe somebody else where they, Bobby agreed to go see her and try to make amends because she had threatened to call a press conference and go public. And she got hysterical, allegedly, and her psychiatrist gave her a sedative in a syringe, allegedly, and she quieted down uh, and they left. And what, But what they didn't know was that she'd been taking barbiturates throughout the day and the drug that he put into her system put her into an overdose. And the housekeeper called them an hour or two later and said she was non-responsive. They went back to the house. They called an ambulance, allegedly, and were taking her to St. Joseph's Hospital in Santa Monica when they lost her. And they decided that they would turn the ambulance around, put her back in the in her own bedroom and make it look like a suicide. That's the story that that Anthony thought he had found. Um, and I tend to believe it. Well, they were but all yes, ill-fated as, as time has showed us. It was it's it's our Anthony and Cleopatra, you know, it's our it's our great kind of tragic mythology about the um the boys of Camelot and the, the golden girl and it all came to grief for all of them. It's it's for an astonishing story. Yeah. So, uh, so I bumped into a lot of good stories in the course yeah. of my life. You, you bumped into a lot of them. I'm going to bump into one right now. Would you, how would you, you've met Palmer. Hmm. You know, you, you, you didn't meet Hogan or did you? Didn't meet Hogan. But you know enough about Hogan that you know him. You know enough about Palmer. Is this Ludwig Oberg, the next combination, Ben Hogan, Arnold Palmer? He has the charm, but he has like the near-perfect golf swing, and maybe he's got the ethic, the work ethic. Maybe. Does he have the appreciation of the fans as well? That's the key. That was the key to Palmer. Um, he was uh, – he had the human touch. He could have been president, I think. Yes, he could have. Yep. He, he had – he had the thing that retail politicians all long for and very few possess. Um, Hubert Humphrey had it, believe it or not. I, I met him when I was in high school. I interviewed him on a show. Uh, you could meet him and 15 years later, he'd bump into you at an airport and he'd remember your name. Arnie was like that. And um, I'd, I'd, I've never met a more charming guy. My dad was a huge Palmer fan as I was growing up. So I, uh, like like he did, I rooted for Palmer. And we all kind of resented Nicholas's entrance, this yeah. big football-looking guy from Ohio um, who played sort of Germanically with, you know, without emotion because Arnie was so – he was such a um, an open book. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the helicopter. Um and they they actually had a deep abiding uh, respect and affection for each other, which both of them told me. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool that that survived down the years. So, um, I mean, that's the game needs that right now. The game needs another figure 
I was lucky enough to play at the Desert Inn with Arnold Palmer in an 18-hole oh, cool. pro-am. And I've nice. told this story before, but coming from the 18th green to the locker room, he signed every autograph every, every until they were gone. It wasn't like he kept walking until he got there, until yeah. there was no one left. And yep. I stood with him while he was doing that. He was just, you know, I've never I've never met anybody like him in, in my life. And uh, not that I, I'm not claiming that I know him, but spending yeah. five hours with him one day was was enough to. You would to you would be able to you would be able to know that it was all genuine. He, I was he absolutely, genuinely absolutely yep. loved people and um, credited the fans with his success. I mean, he said, I couldn't have done this without the support of the people who were behind me. Yeah. And I wanted to give back and amazing man. And he told his his uh, compatriots at the time that they should have, have the same kind of appreciation for the fans. He didn't like tolerate guys who were not understanding of how important the fans were. Exactly. Well, that that was the birth of the pro tour. I mean, his victory at the Masters really is what kicked it off. That was the first year it was televised. And um, he captured the heart of golf fans around the world. Yeah, so uh, and, walking around with him and Arnie's army, and it yeah, really was. The, the, when was when he army. knocked a putt in, the, the, the noise was like you were in a, on the sidelines yeah. of a giant game. Was that loud? Tiger, Tiger had a similar effect on his crowds, but he didn't like them. You know, he didn't right. like being. <laughs> was it he different didn't like being around them? Yeah. Right, because he'd been uh, he'd grown up in a you know in a fishbowl and. Um, yeah, he had uh, eyes on the prize. Yep. Yeah. So, and he had all sorts of other things to contend with that that Arnie didn't. So, um, they they had a similar kind of effect on the game. And um, I mean, that's why they all sort of belong on Mount Rushmore. Well, there's yeah. your book. There's, you got your book there. You got Jack Nicholas's father was a pharmacist. I never heard that he was a, yeah. a tough guy. Maybe he was a straight laced guy. Palmer's father, Palmer revered him, but he was tough. And then uh, very Tiger's father was a lot of things, right? Yeah. I don't know all the facts, but you know, one thing he was is he got Tiger out there and he he got him focused and. I think that, that that's your book. I mean, you don't have to well, bring Tiger into the book. But... Was born into Tiger. Tiger was born a winner, with the urge yeah. to win. And he was programmed from birth to capitalize on that by both his mother and his father. Well, Palmer uh, wasn't programmed. Was... Palmer was no. told hit balls in the rough. Don't you dare hit practice balls in my fairway by Deacon. And uh, <laughs> exactly. and uh, I don't know about Jack Nicholas. I think he grew up a little bit more. Cushy, if that's the right word. They were a little more middle class, yeah. Um, and um, and Jack played other sports. You know, he was he was a football player. He he enjoyed. Uh, he was a good basketball player too. Um, I think I remember that him telling me that. Um, so golf was sort of a you know a, 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 it was a a game that unless you grew up a caddy or around a golf course or you were a member of a golf course. Why would you play golf? You know, I mean, how would you have access to it? No. It's um, it, it, it's a select few who can make it to the the top of that game. Um, and I and I do worry about the future of where we're going with it. I think the the I am a bit of a traditionalist, and the live golf thing has always rubbed me the wrong way. And um, yeah, I um, I just don't see how this resolves the the way. The, the kind of backdoor deal that 
ended it, I think still has a lot of questions about it that have to be answered. Um, and what, about I, the, I, what about the rumor about Ari, the, the big uh, the guy who's out in your world, uh, the agent? The Ari, big, Aman- Ari yeah. well, he's, he's, I, I've heard he's, he's talking about doing it. That would be well, fun if he took it over. Yeah, Ari would know what to do with it. I mean, Ari's one of my agents. I mean, I'm at that agency. Yeah, but get rid of um, get rid of Piff and let him take it on. Maybe brings a couple yeah. of the private equity banker types in. There's certainly money. He could do it. This. And um, WME, in fact, another friend of mine who's a good member of Wingfoot, Rick Rosen, who you may or may not know, is the head of television at, at WME. He's a close, close friend of mine. Uh, was a good golfer and played collegiately, I think. It, maybe it was a walk-on at Michigan. Um, and we talk about this all the time. They represent a lot of good golfers. Um, and uh, I think that would be probably the best thing that could happen. Just get it out of the... Just get it away from that Saudi money that is just got so many question marks around it and and bring it back to the States where it belongs. Money is a necessary evil in sports, but I think it has tainted a lot of the old, you know, aspects of of every sport. It has. I was talking with an old friend last night. You know, um, I was, as I said, born in Brooklyn, grew up uh, with my dad was actually a Giants fan, but I'd fell in love with the Dodgers. We moved out to LA the same year the Dodgers did. I grew up less than two miles. Yeah, we lived, I watched the stadium go up. I went to opening day. So you didn't didn't have that pain in your heart like all those other guys in Brooklyn because they didn't go west. We went west with them. Yeah, Yeah. we went west with them. We'll sit in the back of the plane. (laughs) I understand why they felt uh, bereft. I I do. Um, Luke Snyder. But Duke Snyder, yeah, um, but all those guys had other jobs. Yes, you know, um, yeah, car salesman, and, yeah, football players. Yeah, I mean, had Chuck a job Connors and... was an actor, right? He <laughs> yep. was a ball player first. I mean, Here's we were talking last night about that. All those, all those Dodgers in the early '60s were getting bit parts in westerns and on TV shows. Kopax, Drysdale, Connors. Yeah, Don um, Drysdale was on the Beverly Hillbillies or Leave It to Beaver. They, yeah. Because they needed the money, not because yeah. they were celebrities. Right. And wow. they needed the exposure. It was a different world back then. So well, if Nicholson I wasn't I mean, in the hole, why does he need 200 million or whatever he got? 100 million. I understand he's a. Who, who is that? If Nicholson, who, who I have a. Maybe he owes people money or whatever, and he had to get himself out. Well, I don't think we know the full extent of what went on with his gambling. And um, I don't know that. I, I mean, um, you never know with anybody wrote, to full extent. Yeah, I mean, who wrote the big book about him? Was it Walters? Um, Billy Allen, right? But somebody wrote a book just recently. Alan Seppenwall, or who am I thinking of? Um, you, you'd know him. Uh, um, big golf writer, acquaintance of mine. I, I just blanking on his Was name. Anyway. Uh, Alan Shepnick, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. He published a big book about Phil recently. He thinks, uh, you know, that Phil was in a pretty deep hole and his his gambling was really out of control. And sadly, that's what led him into the arms of the Saudis, That's the, as the theory goes. Which um, is too bad because he's a very popular player and he had that kind of charisma and everything going for him. I liked Phil. 
I, the time I spent with Phil, I really liked him. I just thought, you know, he's personable, funny, intelligent, playful. And he did have a common touch for people. I mean, a lot of people thought he was um, Eddie Haskell, you know, behind yeah. closed doors. <laughs> but um, the times I saw him with folks, he seemed pretty genuine to me. So he was he was Elvis Presley in 2006 in May, a month before the Open, signing master's yeah. autographs, giving birthday hugs. So yeah. let's wrap this up with a great story you haven't told us, Mark. We've got a couple minutes left. Tell us something about um, what you see out there that most people don't see. About show business or golf? Either. Or, or, or don't you care? Um, I think the uh, the most fun, this will crack you up. I, I had a great, um, as we all do, you have a, fa a favorite foursome that you play with, right? And in the... 90s into the 2000s, I, I did a lot of work with, uh, I mentioned him earlier, uh, the guy who, who'd known Dean Martin. Uh, his name was Larry Bresner. He was a partner. And his bet, uh, his partner in comedy management and producing is my best friend, a guy named David Steinberg, oh, yeah. um, who is not David Steinberg, the Canadian comic. This is uh -huh. a guy who became the manager of Robin Williams and Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Bette Midler and a bunch of other people and was uh, a big part of Robin's career for a long time. I met these guys because I was hired to write the sequel to Good Morning Vietnam at Disney in the late 80s. And we hit it off right away and I got became friends with Robin. Um, and David is a great uh, a golfer, great fan of the sport. His nephew is Mark Steinberg of uh tiger woods fan tiger woods that's manager. his agent mm -hmm. um manager yeah and um so we played together always and we had a favorite foursome in the 90s into the early 2000s me david remember tom poston sure yeah one yep. of my favorite actors Great actor. maybe my favorite person that i've ever known in show business we were very close friends the funniest sweetest nicest guy in the world and our fourth was uh super dave bob einstein the comic who is a, a, a was he's no longer with us a comic genius his albert brooks is his younger brother wow he was a writer on the smothers brothers show along with steve martin and george carlin and the other david steinberg i mean he he created the character of super dave had that great show on showtime we're super I'm going to interrupt. Yeah. We got uh, one minute left. Go okay. ahead. Anyway, I'll cut that out. We were my favorite, my favorite foursome, th th these four guys. Um, and uh, always hilarity, always laughs, always fun. Um, Tom, David had just gotten a new one of the first titanium drivers, <laughs> and um, he hit a shot. Um, uh, and it just had this perfect sound. And Tom just went, oh my God, that's the, it's like a, like a diamond falling on a marble floor. And without a beat, Dave said, mom coming home on New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> we had a laugh at, at that quality, at least once around. It was that kind of fun. Sounds like the foursome in uh, Larry David's show, you know. <laughs> well, Bob was in Larry. He played um, 
Marty Funkhauser on. Yeah, Marty Funkhauser is the best. The best. Mark, so we, we really appreciate this. Yeah. This is unbelievable. I hope we get a chance to have you back. Uh, yeah, I have a hundred more questions. Sure. We'll, well do it was part great two. For me. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. Give my regards to Winkfoot. And, yeah, you come to Winkfoot anytime. You know who to go. I will. To. I'm on the East Coast a lot, so I'll give you. A, I'll I'll let you know. I'd love to get out there and see right. it again. I'll take you anytime, yeah. any anytime you like. Fantastic. All great, right. Well, great to uh, meet you. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today, Billy Horn. We really appreciate your feedback. And please Marky, subscribe to the Q show Ratter, and hit Claude the bell Harmon, icon so you get notified movie classics, of new episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard job. and hit them off. That's 36 holes.